0: Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Kimmy Fleming, and this is Moral Matters. Today, we're talking about debt collection in American medicine. And as today's guest puts it, the source of much disillusion in medicine is the fundamental tension between the widely held ideals and aims of medical care and the market fundamentalism that dominates American life which leaves those of us who work in healthcare with a gnawing sense that we are being drawn away from our raison d'etre.
1: Our guest today is Luke Messick, an emergency physician and historian at Mass General Brigham in Boston and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He is the author of Your Money or Your Life, just released on November 1st of 2023. Let's have a listen. Dr. Luke Messick, we're so glad to have you here today. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Really grateful to be here.
1: So I'm going to confess, I read your book in a day. Well, not in a day, in a in a long night. <laughs> um, it, was, it was so easy to consume. It was a manageable length, but it was also incredibly well written. So I, I actually didn't want to stop. Um, and I, I think I finished it around 3 a.m., um, full confession.
0: <laughs> um, so I will confess that I sat down to read it and I did not get <laughs> up for the two hours that it took me to read it. The book was very well written. I learned so much. <laughs> and it just like I, I looked up and I was done with the book and it was about three hours later and I was a different person.
2: Wow. Thanks so much. <laughs> I didn't think it was a page necessarily, but I'm, I'm grateful that you guys could read it in one sitting.
0: <laughs> yeah, I really I appreciated how much background you provided, right? And you're, you're a historian, you're a physician. um, So you, you come at it with this really unique perspective where you were able to provide us the historical context to understand how it has come to be this way. What are the different mechanisms, um, you know, at play that, that most of us have never heard of. And I, I found that just really transformative to understand some of these things for the first time.
2: Wow! Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's <laughs> so one of those books where you write it, and you're like, "Is this a book only my mother will read?" <laughs> or i will some use in it. So I was grateful when 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 some folks like you did. And thanks thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I think all of us who write books wonder if it's only going to be our parents and our closest friends, you know, that we who sign up to read it. So, but I I, I think lots of people should read this book. Um, and what what stopped me cold when I first started reading it and sort of captured me, was your very first sentence in the acknowledgements, Um, which I confess I only started reading in the last couple of years, the acknowledgements. Um, But you said, I began this book out of a sense of betrayal. And then you go on, medicine is not what it should be, what it can be. I wanted to know why. And it resonates so very much with why we do the work that we do, and I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about what was behind that.
2: Yeah, I think this is a theme that has come up on your podcast and in your work a lot. I I struggled so much with the fact that medicine has become just another part of you know the, the market, just another part of American life that's subsumed by dollars and cents, buying and selling. And I don't I don't believe fundamentally that that's what medicine is. I think that medicine is something else that medicine is another part of our social lives that draws on our sense of commitment to one another and our ability to use investigation and curiosity to figure out how to heal people uh, and it's a really beautiful part of American life that I think we lose so much of if we don't keep it separate if we don't allow something sacred in it that is apart from the hurly-burly and buying and selling uh, of, of uh, the rest of our lives. And I, I worry that we've lost that sense. And uh, in so doing, we've kind of lost ourselves.
1: Yeah, boy, I agree with that. Um, I, I really resonate with that, sort of what all of this work is about. So kind of directly relating to that, um, I also kind of, I smiled when you put another sentence in there that said, in a landscape full of billboards and commercials professing care and compassion, even nonprofit healthcare providers can be ruthless in extracting payment. And that sense of, aren't we about more than this, is so critical to the conversation and um, central to it.
2: Yeah, I I I think that we all a lot of us in America and around the world we still still share a sense that medicine is something apart that medicine is something different and the billboards I'm talking about draw on that sense, right? They they appeal to your trust in physicians and in nurses. They appeal to your sense that the hospital is a place of protection and of healing. And when that message, when that deep background of trust is used in the service of uh, profit extraction, or in the service of uh, you know putting patients in legal trouble for an inability to pay bills, uh, that's that's really uh, that's really damaging. I mean, I think it 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 destroys our own trust that we're doing something that is right for the patient. It destroys the patient's trust in us. That we're looking out for their best interests um and you know it's really it's um it's really damaging so yeah i just i i i really do worry when we see those signs on the road uh that are drawing on our deepest sense of what medicine can be and then we don't live up to it and we we like directly contravene the values inherent in those messages
1: yeah because i i feel like um that the whole sense of, of medicine for profit and, and then medical debt as a result, to me, really is, drives a wedge between what's the essence of this profession, which is the relationship between a physician and a patient, which in, an, in and of itself is therapeutic. And when you start breaking it apart for these market reasons, what do we, what do we have? What can we fall back on? And what is, the, what is the core of how we care for our patients?
2: Yeah. I mean, medicine demands so much of us as, as patients and as, as, um, as physicians. We are, you know, we spend long nights in the hospital in training and thereafter. And we spend time away from our families. We spend time away from our friends. We, you know, live in essence in these institutions for, for years at a time. And what gets us through that, right? Is it, the, is it the promise of monetary reward later? Maybe in part, but for most of us, that can't be enough. That'll never be enough. We have to feel like we're doing something bigger, that we're part of something bigger. And I think for the most part, I've been able to maintain that sense that, that when I stand in front of a patient and hear their story, and think about what might be going on with them and prescribe treatment, and monitor them in the hospital, and, you know, stay awake and try to see if they're getting better or getting worse, that I am part of something bigger, that there is more meaning in this than the CPT code that they'll be given for the diagnosis and the bill they'll be charged afterward. But those bills and our aggressiveness in seeking to collect them really do draw away from any sense of purpose we might have, Uh, you know, thinking that my patients were having their wages garnished and being demanded to show up in court um, and risking other forms of legal trouble and seeing that other patients are even being put in jail because they don't show up for their post-judgment hearing to determine what kinds of assets can be seized from them for the crime of falling sick and being unable to pay for it. I mean, that's, that's not what we went into this for, uh, and that really will that that'll be the that'll be the death of medicine, you know. So uh, it really is like the the shadiest underbelly of medicine, and I don't think it should remain the underbelly. Like that, this is something that we need to know about. This is something we can no longer claim ignorance of, um, because by I hope by bringing it out into the open and by ending the worst of the practices, we can reclaim some of that sense that medicine is a. Is a world apart, and medicine is a a field that that can't be that can't be sullied like this.
0: Luke, I wanted to ask you another question about the doctor-patient relationship and the importance of trust in that relationship. Uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned in the book that seventy percent of people say that they trust, you know, physicians, and maybe only twenty-two percent of people or so said that they trusted um, hospital executives. It's something that I have seen that that relationship between the doctor and the patient seems to be, um, I would say, exploited a bit. And it puts a lot of pressure. It puts a lot of pressure on the on the doctor to um, maybe to, um, gosh, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly, but um, using that trust, the, the trust that the patient has for them to... Uh, kind of cover for some of these financial policies or, you know, billing kinds of issues. And then you do see patients come in and they are skeptical, rightfully so. Are you ordering this because it's in my best interest or are you getting money out of it? Uh, I have seen things like that proliferate over the last several years and the relationships erode. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about why that relationship, why the trust in that relationship is so important and why we should be worried about it eroding how it is.
2: Yeah, these relationships are not like normal relationships. We go to a physician and we ask them to uh, diagnose and treat us without knowing fully what's going on with us. And we trust their ability to adequately discern what's going on and prescribe what we what they think is best. And we give them control over our bodies. We let them put us to sleep and uh, put us under anesthesia and cut into us like this is this is about as vulnerable as you're ever going to be in front of another human being and we do it in our moments of greatest pain and greatest weakness so yeah trust is an integral part of it like why would you even show your face in an emergency room unless you hope that they would have your best interest in mind and we don't feel that way about many other folks in life that we don't know, that we've never met, and sometimes for good reason. And you worry that when, when you think that decision isn't completely in the hands of the physician in front of you, of the nurse in front of you, then maybe you shouldn't have reason to trust them entirely. Maybe there are other motives at play, even if it isn't the motives of that particular physician standing in front of you. and. I've seen that distrust kind of play out. I've seen patients hesitate at my recommendation to stay overnight or to get the x-ray or to let me prescribe a particular medication because they know what's going to happen to them. They know that a month from now, a week from now, they're going to get some bill in the mail for a couple thousand dollars and they're living on a fixed income. And is the hospital going to forgive that bill? Can they now trust the hospital administration to... Give them financial assistance like that's a whole nother bucket of worms so yeah we we draw on this deep well of trust but that well is starting to run dry i worry especially when we, we uh chase them on the back end for bills they can't afford uh and that's just uh that's something that that i've i've seen start to erode and i worry that once that well does run completely dry and the trust that the American public has in physicians is equal to the trust they have in hospital administrators that are, everyone's health is going to be at risk. You know, no one's going to, no one's going to trust what what we're telling them as good as our intentions are.
1: So, so I, um, I, I have seen this, I've heard this all across the country, not in any one place. And I think one of the misperceptions that people have is that this doesn't happen if you have insurance. And I think one of the things that your book did was to really bring out the fact that it does occur even when you have insurance. Um, And at one point, I had a hospital administrator standing in my husband's ICU room with a clipboard in their hand saying, you have to sign this paper for whatever the cost is, that you will be personally responsible for it or we won't transfer. And, you know, that is a sobering moment.
2: Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that happen to you. Uh, And there there are some stories like that in the book of people being held liable for expenses that they signed their consent for under moments of extreme duress, you know, while their loved one was unconscious in a, you know, in a trauma ICU. Uh, And they thought that they really had no choice but to sign. I, I, I think the, the fact that insurance doesn't protect us was a, a revelation to me. Perhaps it shouldn't have been, you know, this has been well-documented. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and um, Stephanie Woolhandler and David Himmelstein and other folks who study medical bankruptcy have found that a lot of bankruptcies are happening to people who are insured. And especially in this era of high deductible health insurance, um, when, you know, adequate protection is increasingly an illusion. That's, that's a reality for more and more of us. A lot of the plans that are available on the exchange are high deductible health plans, and those are the ones that seem the most affordable at first blush. So yeah, for a lot of folks, being insured is no true protection against financial catastrophe. And therefore is no true protection to make sure that one would actually come to seek medical care when when you fall sick. I mean, we know that out-of-pocket health spending... Leads people to forego necessary care, leads them to not uh, fill prescriptions that could could make a difference in their lives and in their mortality. So we are missing a huge opportunity by not providing adequate protection to people through insurance. You know, the spread of insurance is a large portion of the story, and for some, you know, getting Medicaid coverage is a huge deal in making sure that they can adequately access care when they need it. One thing about Medicaid is that for the most part, it's, it is pretty good coverage. It doesn't have high copays and high deductibles in most places. Uh, private insurance is a different story. So, yeah, uh, you know, in large part, this is a story of low income folks uh, and the most marginalized. But we shouldn't we shouldn't take too much comfort in that if we're not in those groups, because even folks with insurance are at great risk.
0: Okay, so I have a question for you as a as a culture, you know, in the last gosh, fifteen years now or so, the conversation has been about coverage, how to get people covered, that, you know, the problem of being uninsured. and and this is what Wendy was speaking to, this notion that, you know, if I am insured, then I am protected from catastrophe like this from this kind of of medical debt. Uh, and as as you outlined in your book, that is not the case. And more and more Americans are, going into bankruptcy due to medical debt or, um, you know, having tanking credit ratings due to medical debt or having all kinds of problems due to medical debt. And it has not become part of the broader conversation around healthcare in in a way that I I feel is is warranted um, by the data. Why do you think that is?
2: I think one part of the reason, and you're totally right, this isn't, still adequately covered. It comes in kind of waves of coverage. You know, you see in 2003, 2004, some exposés going on with Yale New Haven Hospital suing patients and putting liens on a massive number of homes in in New Haven, Connecticut. And then recently in the last few years, more coverage through some investigative reporting. But in general, this isn't well known, even within the medical community. A lot of folks I've talked to about this are fairly shocked that this is going on and when i tell them sometimes it's going on at their own institution as i found out in mine the shock and the rage is even is even greater but it isn't something that a lot of us know about i think part of the reason is because as i talk about in the book the idea of collecting debt went from a responsibility that was actually held by the physician. You know, when most physicians were private practitioners in the 19th century, they were collecting their own bills from patients, presenting them on a quarterly or a yearly basis. And when that bill couldn't be covered, patient couldn't afford it, the doctor had to decide what to do. They had to decide whether they were going to, you know, sever the relationship or were they going to forgive the debt or were they going to allow them to repay over time or were they going to make some other arrangement? And that was an intensely personal negotiation between doctor and patient. It wasn't a perfect era. There were plenty of patient people who couldn't access medical care, who couldn't see a doctor because they couldn't afford one. And they didn't have someone who would see them for free. But there was still a sense in, in medicine, and this comes through in some of the statements that were made by medical societies and by individuals, that, that the physician had a responsibility to take care of the patient who couldn't afford to pay. That wasn't always honored, but it was a widely held moral of physician responsibility over time more and more physicians came to work for larger and larger groups they came to work for hospitals most of us are employed by large organizations at this point 75% of us are employees of large organizations and the idea of the independent professional has largely faded it's continuing to fade and so the responsibility for collecting debts really no longer lies with the physician it's it's gone from the physician to the hospital and now more and more to third parties oftentimes third parties who have no clinical or social bonds to patients whatsoever and so you know by by moving the locus of collection from the physician to the hospital to these third parties it's become more and more distant from our from our memory from our minds and we really have no idea what our patients are being charged and what measures are being taken to collect from them I don't think that's an excuse. Like we can't, we can't hide behind that ignorance any longer. But it is a reality, and uh, it has led to a lot of widespread ignorance of 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 what you know what our patients are going through.
1: So in in some cases, I've talked to physicians who have tried very hard to get the numbers. What are my patients charged for what for the work that I do? And they have been told, sorry. We can't share that with you, even though you're one of our employed physicians, that is a proprietary secret. And so even physicians who want to know what the hospital is charging in their name, because when you get, when you're employed, you have to sign away your, you have to sign away your uh, billing rights to the hospital, to the entity that employs you. So even though it's, the bills are coming out in your name you don't know, you don't have the right to know, according to the hospitals, what is being charged in your name. And even though federal agencies will hold you accountable for appropriate billing in your name, (laughs) it it has become so convoluted.
2: Yeah, we still think of ourselves as professionals and have with some measure of independence. But in practice, you know, there is a lot of withholding of information going on. And I just, I do wonder, even these recent efforts with some merit to make sure that hospitals publish their prices, I worry that that's, that's not nearly enough. You know, we're, this disclosure of prices, of list prices, of charge master prices is probably a necessary step. But when you are feeling chest pain, or when all of a sudden the left side of your body isn't working and you have to run to call 911 and uh, get to the emergency department. Like, you don't have time or, in- or the inclination to, to shop around to look for the lowest price in your area. Like, you just need to get to that cath lab. You need to get to a neurointerventional suite. And, you know, this is something that economists, health economists, have known for a long time that this healthcare is not a perfect market. It never can be. It operates under conditions. Uh, like imperfect information that don't allow for the workings of, you know, the the magic of the market. And so, you know, helping people understand pricing and making sure that we know what our patients are being charged is, is certainly part of the solution. And, and withholding that information from physicians doesn't seem like uh, something that any administrator should be doing. Uh, and it's certainly a measure of infantilization that we're made to We're made to ask for that information or beg for that information and and not be given an afterward. But even that isn't going to be enough. Like we, we need to move this marketization out of healthcare, you know, point of care payments for medical services are known to have adverse health consequences and aggressive measures to collect afterward. Don't even garner hospitals that much money. And so we, you know, we, we need to move away from so much, of, so much of current practice.
1: Yeah, so why do hospitals do this if, if they're not getting that much money? Because at one point, you know, I was struck over and over again, and I kept asking this question of the, you know, of the book in, in my head. Okay, so Hopkins is only going to recoup less than one-tenth of one percent of its operating revenue. Northwell Health, you know, sued 2,500 patients. and. They At the same time, they got $1.2 billion through the CARES Act, Mayo Clinic. Their lawsuits would have garnered the hospital just 0.01% of the hospital's $15.7 billion revenue. Like, it's it's a drop in the bucket. So why do they do it?
2: This was one of the persisting mysteries that I was trying to figure out throughout the book. I mean, I knew when I started looking at my own hospital during residency that they were suing hundreds of patients a year. But from each one, even if they got all the money that they were suing the patients for, and these were low-income patients who often couldn't pay regardless of how aggressive the measures were, that they were going to make at most a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, the price of certainly much less than any of the administrators in this C-suite were making. So it didn't seem worth it. Why is this worth it? I think part of it is that there's so much distance between the clinical bonds, between physician and patient, nurse and patient, and the folks doing the collecting, that any amount of money seems worthwhile, right? And any amount we can push ourselves into the black a little further, out of the red a little further, seems worthwhile. But it's it's never going to help a hospital keep its doors open if it's at risk. You know, it's like bailing out the Titanic with a pail of water. Like you're not going to make enough money from this practice to make a shred of difference in your profit and loss statement. So then why, right? Like even this little amount of money why would you do it? There are some theories out there, and this, was, this has been bandied about for a while by some lawyers who ended up suing hospitals for inadequate charity care in the 2000s, and then more recently actually showed up in some court records, which is that hospitals are doing this sometimes with some measure of um, deliberation in order to prevent poor patients from showing up in the first place that you have to treat every patient who comes in the door, right? Mtala says that you have to provide a screening exam and stabilization to any patient who shows up to your ED. So how are you going to keep poor folks from showing up when you can no longer do the sort of patient dumping that we saw in the eighties? Well, maybe it's through aggressive debt collection measures that, that will prevent patients from showing up in the future. I worry that this, seemed too nefarious but then i saw some court records where hospital administrators were saying yeah we are doing this to stem the tide of indigent patients and so there there is some documentary evidence that at least some administrators are doing this deliberately i don't want to cast too you know broad a net with this i don't want to cast aspersions on every hospital administrator out there including many who are just doing their best but this is a problem that you know i think doesn't make hospitals that much money it could be done away with entirely tomorrow um and if there wasn't this kind of ulterior motive of keeping poor patients from showing up in the first place then uh then we shouldn't we should be gone we should be done with it entirely
1: that's an absolutely horrible thought
0: and at the same time, I feel like, in the absence of transparency from these hospital systems about why are you continuing to aggressively pursue poor folks for medical debt when you know that you're 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 recouping just like a minuscule amount. it has it just has no effect at all. They're not, as far as I know, there's not transparency where they are speaking to why they are putting so much resources into that. So I do think that this conversation is a fair one.
2: Yeah, and I think we have to bring into the conversation a couple other actors too, right? It's not just hospital administrators and physicians. Like there there is increasingly there are increasingly other parties involved. And so since at least the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s, you've had a lot of third-party debt collectors who make a lot of money. Even if the hospitals don't make a ton of money off this, they they make a huge portion of their incomes off of collecting medical debt. And their sales pitch to hospitals is that we'll take this off your hands, right? Hospitals And their collection departments are built to fight with insurance companies right they want to get adequate reimbursement from insurance companies who are constantly trying to deny it and so they see their role as doing battle with insurance companies and that is a battle with which i completely sympathize with the hospitals Um, and a lot of them don't want to be calling individual patients right that's not what they do that's not what they like that's not what they signed up for the debt collectors that contact these hospitals and that meet with them at industry conferences they promise to take that off their plates you know that's not your job that's our job and you'll make some money in the process so just hand it over right and and that sales pitch was too good to pass up and still is too good to pass up for a lot of a lot of hospitals so i think you know that that sales pitch that relationship has to be brought in as well there's there's some other folks Who do make a lot of money off this. Some of the wealthiest people in America make a large portion of their income off of medical debt collection. And so, you know, there's there's some other interests at play here, too.
1: So, to be fair, before we start talking about solutions, I also want to talk about one more piece of this, which I was really glad to see you do, Um, which is talking about the fact that the hospital misbehavior model is insufficient and it's inadequate to describe everything, we can't just make it a simplistic argument as much as we would like to, because there are plenty of other bad actors in this. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the Jacobian and Warren paper and what implications that has.
2: Yeah, this is, a, this is an idea that came from an article written about 20 years ago by some legal scholars, Melissa Jacoby at UNC and Elizabeth Warren, then at Harvard, now in the Senate. And they had done research on medical debt and laws around medical debt for, for decades. And they've done some of the really pioneering studies that informed President Obama when he was trying to pass the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of the popular interpretation of what was going on was that a few bad apples within hospital administration were aggressively pursuing patients and they should just stop doing that. And that's the tenor of a lot of the articles even today you'll read in investigative journalists' work, which is absolutely essential. And to be honest, there are some hospital administrators who do seem overtly callous in their, in their actions. But that is, isn't nearly enough of an analysis of the problem. And so Jacoby and Warren were talking about a few things. They were saying there are other incentives driving this to happen. There are complex Medicare regulations that seemed at least at the time to require hospitals to take some aggressive measures to collect. Subsequently, health and human services started to write new regulations to try to do away with that. but there's still some popular conceptions within the healthcare financing community that they have to do this and then there's other things too there's. Uh, there's other things that are driving people into debt as well. There's the cost of uh, lost income from providing care. There's uh, the, uh, the cost of medication. There's other forms of debt that people go into that are not related to hospitals either. But we have to think probably in terms of broader incentives. If there weren't this particular crop of debt collectors and healthcare administrators doing this, then there would be others. And so long as medical debt can be collected in the same way as your car loan can be, then someone's going to try to sell those wares and someone's going to take them up on the offer. So changing the law and changing the incentives has to be a part of the solution.
0: Luke, I know Wendy said we were going to get to solutions, but there's one thing that I'm dying to ask you about. So I learned so much about charity care in in your book. And one thing that I learned is that to have a nonprofit status, uh, a hospital has to provide charity care of, of some kind. And what I learned through your book is that it, it seems like over time, these systems have looked for ways to get around that, changing community, to community benefit from charity care Um, making the process of applying and receiving charity care obtuse on purpose. Um, I I was hoping to hear a little bit from you about, you know, if if these systems were functioning as designed, how would charity care work?
2: Yeah, this is a wild part of the story. I mean, you think about where hospitals came from. So many of our most august hospitals were first almshouses. They were houses to care for the poor and the infirm and folks who had no one else. These weren't perfect institutions, right? These weren't places where you would go unless you were at your wit's end. And they didn't even accept everyone who came into their doors. But they were institutions devoted to the care of the poor. That continued until at least the 20th century when hospitals started to try to draw in more paying patients. They changed their large open wards with Tons of patients into private rooms. They started to offer new forms of technology. You had x rays, you had surgery. And so paying patients started to show up at their doors. Third party payers became a bigger part of the equation during the 20th century. So insurers, Medicare, Medicaid. And over time, hospitals started to argue that they were no longer charitable institutions, that that sort of legacy was an anachronism. That's what they called it. And they were able to convince the IRS that they shouldn't be held to that standard any longer it was literally called the charity care standard this 1956 irs regulation through which some hospitals lost their tax exemption if they didn't provide enough charity care by 1969 especially after the passage of medicare and medicaid they argued that basically everyone had insurance anyway and so why would they have to live by that law anymore they changed the standard to what's become known as the community benefit standard and this had many different iterations, but at first it was really only having an open ER to which people could walk in. They weren't guaranteed care there, but every hospital had to have an open ER and they had to accept paying patients. Right? That was the only criteria by which they were judged to be eligible for tax exemption. There have been other standards written over time that required them to do something more, but charity care is no longer the central. Requirement of tax-exempt nonprofit hospitals. And as a result, many hospitals don't provide much in the way of charity care. There's some papers that show that as a percentage of revenue, nonprofit hospitals spend less on charity care than for-profit hospitals do. So, you know, this is this has been an a widely a derided problem. I mean, there's there have been hearings on this, Democrats, Republicans across the aisle, there's widespread anger, shock at the fact that these institutions, that we still think in our minds should be devoted to the care of the poor, are no longer doing so. But that's been a long time coming. Hospitals have been working to erode that image of themselves for quite a while, at least in public policy. So, so what we deal with now is that hospitals are required by the Affordable Care Act to have a financial assistance policy. They have to publicize it, but they really do as much as they can often not to publicize it. And even if you go on their websites and you look for the financial assistance policy, it's often buried under uh, reminders again and again that you can pay your bill, right? Here's how you pay your bill. Here's how you pay your bill. And then at the very bottom, maybe you'll find their charity care policy. But every hospital that is tax exempt should have a charity care policy. But those policies are widely varied. And some hospitals are fairly generous. Some hospitals are fairly stingy. And it's really, it doesn't conform to what you think they should be. I mean, even the hospitals that are the richest and the most well-endowed, they aren't often the ones that have the most generous policies. So yeah, our hospitals have have changed uh, from that almshouse tradition, which we shouldn't glorify, but was, I think, uh, in many ways, a A tradition worth upholding.
0: Something that bothers me the most about the healthcare environment that we're in right now is the GoFundMe, Uh, the the GoFundMe uh, kind of thing, where, in my experience, you know, it's presented as a feel good story on the news. You know, local five year old raises half a million dollars for her cancer treatment, and gosh, when we stand back and think about like what is going on here, right? And I hear. And I'm I'm learning a lot more about how you know in some institutions physicians are required or pressured into like helping with these campaigns and being a part of it. What's going on there? What did you learn about the GoFundMe piece of you know healthcare and medical debt?
2: Yeah, more and more patients are being asked to to make these personal appeals for their own for their own care. Some charity care applications ask hospital ask. Patients to list how many GoFundMe campaigns have you put out? What have you raised? Uh, so the hospital can claim that that money too. Uh, this is this is just wild, right? Like patients should not be made to fundraise for their own care. And while we should always be grateful for the generosity of friends, family, and strangers, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't place the onus on the sick to their own care the destitute sick are the last people who should be made to uh to make those sorts of appeals but yeah but more and more patients are being made to do so and there are some there are some amazing efforts going on right there's dollar four is this group that will help you apply for hospital financial assistance and they use volunteers to do it for free so that patients who are uh sick and recovering aren't made to go through mountains of paperwork on their own, like that's an amazing, heartening story. But the fact that hospitals are putting patients through that rigmarole to apply for financial assistance is in itself wrong. And they don't have to do it. They can, at the point of care, determine whether someone is eligible for hospital financial assistance and tell them when they walk in the door that you'll never be made to pay for this. Some hospitals are doing that, but still too few. There's RIP medical debt, which is buying and forgiving patients' debt. Which, for the folks who have their debt forgiven, is a lifesaver. But should we really be relying on fundraising campaigns to help prevent patients from, you know, legal trouble and credit trouble and the stress of being in debt to a hospital? Like, no, that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be the private institute. That shouldn't be the role of, of, of charity. But, yeah, more and more, like we've come to rely on individual initiative and the outstanding generosity of people and and sympathy for the destitute sick to to do this kind of work
1: yeah that was that was that was disheartening to me as well that we've we sort of <laughs> it feels to me like this is Milton Friedman's model come all the way full circle, right? that what he said was the only obligation of a corporation is to maximize value for shareholders who will then in their generosity go back and trickle those dollars into the public square for the public good and i feel like we're right there we are at the end stage of capitalism in healthcare between that and the financializing between of of credit cards and patient loans like oh that's really it's kind of an ugly place and yet there are some really bright spots like you mentioned Cooley Dickinson, and I just have to say, I have to put this one little prop in there. Um, That was the local hospital where my grandmother lived. And she worked there for decades. It is a tiny community hospital that was really engaged there. And so I think one of the things that you you said was they were doing the pre-screening for eligibility.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you walk into a hospital door, uh, it's actually fairly easy for a hospital to tell not only whether you're insured, but whether you're eligible for public insurance, whether you're eligible for Medicaid and just haven't been able to sign up yet, because signing up for Medicaid can be challenging as well. Or whether you're on a public program like SNAP benefits, that would automatically mean that your income is low enough to qualify for the hospital's charity care program. And some hospitals do this as a matter of course. Cooley Dickinson was signing people up for Medicaid. Uh, in the 2000s, which is when that uh, reference came up in the book uh, because it was part of a congressional report. And more recently, OHSU, uh, Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon, has switched from requiring patients to go through this whole process of applying for financial assistance to being told if they qualify when they walk in the door, which has decreased the number of applications, decreased the number of declined applications because many people were Uh, Qualified for charity care, but just didn't fill out the application correctly. So there's there's ways to make this far easier if we're willing to make a little step to do so. And some state legislatures have started to make this a requirement. Minnesota just passed a state law. Maryland recently passed a state law that require hospitals to do this screening uh, to see whether patients qualify. Some hospitals are increasing their eligibility criteria for charity care, and some state laws are requiring them to do so as well. So there's there's measures that we can take at the state and federal level to make this make this easier, make this better. I mean, at the end of the day, I do think that a single-payer healthcare system that is free at the point of care and has first-dollar benefits is really the answer to this. Like, so long as we continue to place people in debt and require them to pay uh, for their care, we're, we're going to face this problem. But in the meantime, there are plenty of measures we can do to make it far less painful.
1: So I, I also loved the story that you told of Yale New Haven. And what I loved about that was that it was a story of sort of unlikely bedfellows where we often don't think about partnering with people like local journalists to get the stories out. And could you just describe that a little bit? Because I think it's important for people to know how to how to bring together a collective voice and then how to get it heard to make change.
2: Yeah. I don't think a lot of us in medicine are trained in theories of social change or how, how this comes about, and it can leave us kind of despondent thinking about how are we ever going to affect a system this large. But the Young New Haven story is really a heartening one. I mean, this was a, this was a huge problem, right? 2003, 2004, you had 7.5% of owner-occupied, owner-occupied homes in New Haven having a property lien placed on them by the hospital for unpaid bills. You had patients having their wages garnished. You had people having their homes foreclosed on, including (laughs) foreclosure proceedings that were started against a patient who had recently had a home built for him by Habitat for Humanity, right? This was really, really bad. But it wasn't really noticed except by the folks who were going through it until a small independent weekly run by, Paul Bass, a local mock breaking journalist, started writing about it. And then that story got picked up by a recent Yale grad who was working as a researcher for the SEIU. And then her work got picked up by a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who started writing exposés on Yale New Haven's practices and other hospitals around the country who are doing similar things to patients. And then that got picked up by members of Congress who held hearings on the issue and had some of the largest health systems in the country testify before them, which spurred Connecticut to change the state laws, which spurred a ton of hospital systems to promise to change their practices, which did for a time make a difference in millions of people's lives. Now, that change was not as long lasting as one would hope. People continued to be sued around the country and even in Connecticut. But it was, I think, an example of what can be done. Through bringing some of these practices to light. Because so many of us still believe that hospitals can and should be more, that medicine can and should be better than it is. The congressional hearings were held by a Republican who calls himself a conservative, but states that patients should be responsible, but they should only be as responsible as they can be, right? Some people can't afford to pay for this care, and they shouldn't be hounded to the ends of the earth when they can't. They should still be provided this care and not be ruined as a result of it. This was a widely held ideal and still crosses the aisle. So, you know, we can make use of this in bringing this stuff to light because so many of us still, believes that, still believe that hospitals can do more. The New York Times' most recent series on this is called How Nonprofit Hospitals Lost Their Way, right? That, that does show us that this is, this is still something we all, a lot of us, a lot of us still hold dear.
1: I I just love that story. Um, it, it makes it it makes it so important to understand why we need to support local journalism because that echoes. They're under the same pressures that physicians are with consolidation and private equity encroachment and all of that. So supporting, we forget that all action starts locally, and and it's not just in healthcare, but we need other. Other supporting structures around us to help us get the word out, and I also, you know, I, I really want you to tell the story about you and your hyperlocal effort because everybody asks what what can I as one person do, and I think what you did really illustrates exactly what one person can do in a very effective way.
2: Well, thanks. I mean, it's not as effective as I think the work at Yale New Haven was, or more recently, the work at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Maryland was, but it was it, it was a lesson. I had heard about this practice in 2019 when I started looking into it. I'd heard that some hospitals were suing patients for their bills and garnishing their wages and dinging their credit and even foreclosing on their homes or denying them care. But I didn't think it was that widespread. I thought it was just a few bad apples. But I did want to make sure that the hospitals that I was working in, in Rhode Island, where I was doing residency, were not a part of it. So I went to my local courthouse, and I asked to be led to the court records, and I looked up my hospitals. And there, to my surprise and shame, I had learned that my hospital was suing patients in the hundreds every year. And these were not folks who could afford the bills that they were being given. They were single mothers. They were folks on fixed incomes, on Social Security disability. And when they wrote, please, asking for leniency, they were put on payment plans that would have them paying back single visits for five, six, seven years. I mean, these were onerous bills that I I couldn't imagine being saddled with. If they didn't pay them, they would be charged double-digit interest, they would ha- be taken to court and have their wages garnished. And it wasn't, it wasn't something I could be a part of. I couldn't imagine going to work and seeing patients in the emergency department and recommending they stay overnight, even when they worried about the bill, while I knew this was going on. And so I wondered what I should do about it. And finally, I ended up writing this op-ed called Lifespan, which was the name of the hospital system. Lifespan stops suing my patients. I sent it around to a bunch of different outlets. New York Times, Washington Post, no response. Boston Globe, no response. Providence Journal, my own local daily, no response. And then I ended up sending it to this local blog written by a, a, another progressive muckraker. Uh, the blog is called Uprise Rhode Island. I read it because I thought. Uh, the folks who wrote for it, including Steve Alquist, the editor were writing about stuff that mattered to real people, but I didn't think anyone else was reading it. So when he agreed to publish it, I was happy, but I didn't think it would make too much of a difference. But the day I wrote it, I got a call from the hospital saying I really needed to have some meetings, uh, with some of the administration and they were pretty upset with me in large part because they said I was incorrect. That the hospital did not sue patients. I knew this was wrong because I had I had the receipts, right? I'd seen the I'd seen the court records. I had them with me. I could cite, you know, chapter and verse the name of the person who they'd sued two weeks prior. And I told them that. And they were still very insistent that they didn't sue patients. When to their credit, when I sent them the records, they changed their tune. Within a couple of weeks, they had Dismissed the remaining court cases and severed their relationship with the third party debt collector. They claimed that it was being done without their knowledge, which I actually kind of believe. Like, so many folks in the hospital, including in the administration, including in the CFO's office, don't know what's going on with their third party debt collectors. That role has been shifted out to the third parties to such an extent that there might only be a few people in the hospital who even have any inkling of what's going on. I don't think that should be an excuse, but it is a reality. So in that case, fortunately, the hospital did stop suing patients. Um, It didn't lead to large-scale changes in the same way as the Yale New Haven case or the Johns Hopkins case. Rhode Island still has the 46th worst consumer protections for medical debt. We're still working to change that with some local legislators here. And so it goes to show you that maybe individual action isn't necessarily the course that I would take um, in every circumstance. I think collective action is really much more powerful and much more important, but you don't have to sit by while this happens.
1: And it's the start. It's the start of collective action because you you have to get the stories and then build the data and then make the ask. So it's the start.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you're totally right about local journalism. We're losing it, right? <laughs> There's so many of these uh, institutions have been closed down. The New Haven Advocate, which is the uh, the weekly that published their first stories about uh, folks being sued in New Haven, they closed down 10 years ago, um, as so many local journalistic outfits have. So, you know, some of the best stories about this problem have come out from independent journalists, ProPublica Kaiser health news are doing amazing work on this now, and we should do as much as we can to make sure those outlets, uh,
0: are able to continue doing that work.
1: Yeah. So I, I know that we've gone on a long time and I appreciate all of your time. I, this is such an important topic that I didn't want to give it a short shrift at all. I think every bit of it is, is essential. Um, And there's, you know, one of the things that you say at the end of the book is, it's time to decide. It's time for physicians to decide. I think it's time for patients to decide. I think it's time for hospitals as a whole to decide what is our identity and what do we want from healthcare. And I wonder if you have thoughts about how we drive that conversation in society as a whole
2: yeah yeah I totally agree. That question of identity is is really central. Who are we really? Who do we strive to be? Um, I think part of the answer is making sure that we know what we're doing, that we no longer hide behind this this veil of ignorance that we don't have any role in our hospitals, billing and collection practices. We have to learn what what's going on. So some of that's pretty easy to find out. I mean, you can go online and find your hospital's financial assistance policy. It'll say at what level of income patients can qualify for charity care. You can go look in court records and see if your hospital is suing patients. There have been some efforts at statewide efforts to determine who um, is suing and even bringing that to light has led to rapid declines in uh, lawsuits against patients in many states, which is a heartening development. But I think you know, we as physicians, we as anyone who works in hospitals or has anything to do with them should know what our institutions are doing. After that, I think, you know, some some hard conversations with uh, our administrators are in order. We should talk with them about how we can do better. I don't think you necessarily need to run to the press immediately like I did, but um, the press can be a part of the solution if you know those solutions aren't forthcoming. But at the end of the day, you know, we took an oath to our patients, and it really shouldn't be only in the clinical realm that we seek to do no harm. after our patients leave the hospital, uh, we should make sure that our actions aren't part of harming patients as well. so yeah there's there's so much we can do. a lot of is a lot of it is outside of what we were trained to do, and I really do feel for Physicians, nurses, anyone in healthcare who feels like this is one more burden being placed upon them, right? So much of your work uh, and your discussions of moral injury have to do with the increasing burdens that are placed at the feet of uh, people who work in healthcare. And basically, I'm placing one more. (laughs) Like that's nuts, right? Like I, I, I do feel for folks who feel like this is just one more thing that they're being asked to do. But I do think it will help. I do think if we, can, if we can address this, then our identity and our sense of purpose can be restored. And I feel better going into work knowing that my patients aren't being hounded than even when I didn't know what was going on. So, uh, you know, by solving this problem, I think we can reclaim part of our identity.
1: Yeah. And as Don Berwick said to us on our very first podcast, when you're feeling helpless, act. Luke, thank you so much This has been a great conversation
0: Thanks so much for being here, Luke And thank you for putting all of your heart, soul, and energy into this book I know it's going to be an important part of the solution Thank you
2: And thanks so much for having me And thanks so much for your work I've learned so much about what we can do uh, To uh, to reclaim profession from your work And uh, I'm grateful to be a part of the conversation
1: Yeah, we're better together
0: Thank you for joining us on Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios.
1: To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at FixMoralInjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there.
0: Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening.
1: And stay well.